Thanks. I'll take one too. I need another one. <laughs> I always get two. Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing? 
especially don't do these type of things. Do you over, eat some overnight cash? You're not left-handed, are you? No. Oh, oh that's good. Well, I wonder why in your other shoulder you didn't give up. You need your right hand. Yeah. I would think. Because I know that. Well, good. You use this hand for like a vice and stuff. You do things with the other hand. You know? You hold your stuff. Uh, the heavy stuff. Uh, yeah. go to therapy? Maybe. I gotta go and in about a week I got another appointment for him to check it out. Ask him if he can No, I fish. I am fishing. I do not. I can fish with my right
Good morning. Everybody hear me okay? Okay. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, skip down to uh, number five. Today is our communion Sunday. After the morning service, we will have a 10-minute break, and then we gather for our communion service. Uh, there will be no evening service tonight, nor will there be one next week because of the, the holiday. Short meeting will be for the men today who are interested in doing a sunrise breakfast mm. next Sunday. Uh, the tenor of the conversation will be as many men that would like to lend a hand uh, in doing this and the obverse of that would be the lady's responsibility is just to come as you normally are beautiful and enjoy the time and you're not to lay a finger on any of the pots, pans, tables, or anything else. So this has been a little bit of a contention over the years. The girls wind up cleaning the mess that we make up, so hopefully this will be a little change of pace. Easter sunrise service will be at 9 a.m. next Sunday. Just come. Like I said, food will be provided. Worship service will be at 10.30. Do we have any additional comments or praises or prayer requests that uh, aren't in the bulletin for today? Ken? Ella has an echogram tomorrow. She's still wearing the vest. Still has to wear. He wants her to wear the vest till after the heart cat. Okay. And I, she, she's been pretty good about work. It. I don't know if you know anything about. It's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And she's had it on about four months now. So I think. I don't know what he's going to tell her, but she's about had enough. Now she has to wear that vest 24 hours a day, am I right. correct? Yes. That's got to be just yeah. unwieldy. And then the, the monitor is about the size of a brick and it's got a strap and it hangs around your neck 24-7. Yeah. But she's been pretty good. And they say man's technology is easier on man. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know about that. Well, that's something to continue in our prayers for her. Then she has to have oxygen 24-7, which she's doing good with that. We, did, we put a big long hose and she can get to her bedroom and the bathroom and stuff like that. I'll refrain from comment on that because usually uh, I wind up stepping in something when I say things. But, uh, uh, 
Also, there are some issues going on with you. Are you getting those resolved? With your, uh, your, your fainting, have you, have you figured out what was the, the problem with your passing out? Yeah. I very short-winded and we're trying to find out why. I, I'll conk out every once in a while. They usually will come up with something every time it's something different. The last time, well, they claim I was severely dehydrated, which, I don't know, some of these tests, I have a hard time comprehending what they're telling me. But they're, they're supposed to be the smart ones. Well, I guess that's why they call it the practice of medicine. Yeah. Someday, hopefully before it's too late, they'll get it right, huh? Oh, amen. Brother Dale, I see that uh, the harness is off of you. It means uh, walleye fishing is on the horizon for us yeah. by May. Yeah. Occupational therapy, doing this out on the water? Maybe later. Oh, yeah, building strength. That's right. Okay, look forward to it. Any other comments or uh, prayer requests for us this morning? Going once, going twice. Okay, scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, and you'll find that at page 1871 in your pew Bible.
before we begin, there was one more thing thing I forgot to, to bring up. Uh, Jared and his family have gone to see a movie this, this weekend. I think it was yesterday. And I'd like uh, for him to give a, a brief synopsis, if you will, on what it was and perhaps maybe even recommend it to you for, for your viewing pleasure. We went to go see His Only Son. Are you aware of that movie in theaters? Not many are. We didn't know it was in there. We went looking for something to do yesterday, and His Only Son was playing at our Lapeer Theaters, and it's from the Angel Studios, the same people who produce uh, The Chosen. Uh, so we decided to go see that. And it's about Abraham and, and the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, and, of course, uh, they filled two hours almost of dialogue that's they had to of course make up but it's well done um, and what it spends time doing is talking about the relationship mostly between Abraham and Sarah and the controversy over waiting for God to fulfill his promise and then finally the birth of Isaac and the treasure that both of them had in him and it's all while taking place while they're, they're going to Moriah uh, to sacrifice Isaac uh, it's well done and it has a gospel presentation uh, and at the end uh, it's I don't want to spoil that for you, but it, it brings it home pretty quickly why that's all shadow and what the reality is when it's talking about God d who did not spare his own son, his only son. Um, I recommend it to you. Uh, they are, this is the first time it's been done like this where we have a movie in there that's been crowdsourced and, and they're looking for funding. So as long as we go to the movie while it's still here in Lapeer, they will continue to send movies our way. Uh, and we will help fund other projects which are better than funding the rest of Hollywood, in my opinion, uh, which we go and do quite often. So His Only Son, I don't know how long it's playing. Just this week, we think, uh, the Easter week. And uh, again, I didn't even know it was in our theaters, and all of a sudden it was there. So I recommend it to you. stand with us as we begin our service with prayer. Brother George McLeod, would you kindly lead us in the opening prayer? Our Father and our God, as we come before you today, we do so, Lord, uh, thanking you for the opportunity to gather in your name. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would bless our time in your house. We thank you for the wonderful sunshine that we see. And yet at the same time, Lord, whether it's raining or whether it's sunny, uh, it is a day that you have made and we should rejoice in all that you are doing for us. We pray, God, that you would help us as we listen to the word today to have our hearts open and our minds unclouded with the things of this world that we might get the full benefit through the Holy Spirit of what you have declared. And we pray for Pastor as he speaks that all of us, Lord, will benefit from your word. Bless the day now, Father. We give you praise in all things. In Jesus' name we ask you. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing. Take your brown hymnal this morning, <coughs> excuse me, and turn to number 399. 399 in the brown. <coughs> 
93 in the brown. I don't have to look it up because that's the piano player's favorite song. <coughs> he just knows it. 493 in the brown. Why this one on the brown? <coughs>
<clears throat> Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and that'll be page 1884 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. <clears throat> James chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 now listen you, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in, that, in, the day, in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have li lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. We take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 405, 405 in the brown.
Our scripture lesson today is from James chapter 5. James 5. Last Lord's Day we studied confident faith. Believers begin with no faith. Because the faith that trusts God for life and living is found in no one. How do we know that? Well, God must give it before it can be used. God gives faith through the preaching of the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This faith is not an intellectual prowess. It is a trust in the God of the universe, the Savior, Jesus. Now, it's not that faith is unreasonable, that is opposed to reason, but rather that faith discovers what intellect rejects. The God of all wisdom is not a paltry discovery. To know God places us miles ahead of our contemporaries in understanding and in wisdom. We learn that faith can be small, faith can be weak, but it still accomplishes much if the object of the faith is God and his son, Jesus. It's the object that's important. There's an old song written by Kitty J. Suffield. Whose husband was an evangelist in the holiness movement of the 1900s in our country. And the chorus of the song she wrote says this Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. We learn, secondly, that faith that is small and weak can and must grow. It must grow. It must mature. It can become extraordinary faith. Standing for Christ against severe trial. Persevering. Not giving up. This is the way faith needs to live itself out in our lives. God expects our faith, however small, however weak, to grow and mature in him as we study his word and learn more about his grace and goodness. Today, we're going to look at the subject, introspective faith. This is a misdirected faith. Sometimes it's good to look at things we don't want to become as well as the things we want to become. And so we'll ask the Lord for his enablement 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word. It doesn't uh, pull any punches. It tells us what we are. It tells it like it is. Our faith can be weak. It can be little. And sadly, it can be introspective. That is to say, we can have faith in ourselves. I pray that you'll help us to see that that kind of faith gets us nowhere. The object of our faith is everything. And it better not be us. It better not be us saying, I can do that. Lord, help us to see that apart from the grace of God in spiritual work, it is the Holy Spirit that does the work. It is Jesus Christ's very Spirit that does the work. Bless us with an understanding of these things today. Grant us the faith that's biblical. In Christ's name, amen. Our text today is in James 5. And it's interesting that James talks about this whole business of hoarding wealth. When James wrote the opening challenge of chapter 5, he wrote this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. He's saying these things to these people that are part of the church there that he's ministering to. Now I'm convinced that he was addressing people with large bank accounts whose faith was in their portfolios and not in God. There are people like that, you know, and they are found in the church sometimes. And he was obviously talking about real money. Look at verse 3. Your gold, your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Normally, I don't think we think of gold and silver as precious metals that corrode. We don't. Silver tends to tarnish. But even so, it loses none of its value because of that. Gold is found bright and shiny even in its raw form. So what was James talking about? Well, he was describing people who had been greatly blessed of God, who had much in terms of resources, who could have done a lot of good with their holdings if they had had a mind to do so but instead verse 4 says these rich failed to pay their workers ooh their due wages for work already rendered it also says god had heard the cries of these unpaid and needy harvesters Verse 5 says, these wealthy had lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. I'm getting fatter by the moment. 
Verse 7 says that murder and death had occurred on the innocent because of the greed of these estate managers. This is not a pretty picture of how God's people should operate. So we're likely to say, ha ha, hearty amen to all this because of the current economic crisis of our own country fostered upon us by the greedy wheeler dealers on Wall Street. We think the Wall Street fat cats fill the bill of James' description to the very letter. But I want you to consider a different scenario, one which also has to do with wealth, but not with money. And I'm referring to us as God's people who have been gifted by God with a knowledge of the truth, who have heard and responded to the gospel, who are saved and heaven-bound, and who in many ways are what James describes earlier, saying, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. He promised those who love him. James 2 verse 5. To be rich in faith is also to be granted a great depository of wealth for which we are held accountable in our stewardship. The Bible ever shows that this is where the real riches lie. The psalmist put it this way, Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49, verse 16 and following. If you have life, but you have no relationship with God, you don't understand things that are going on from a spiritual viewpoint. You're just like some dumb beast out there grazing in the grass. And when it dies, it dies maybe ends up in the slaughterhouse or a meat factory or whatever, but it's gone and no more. Solomon put it this way, a faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. 
a stingy man. He's eager to get rich. And he's unaware that poverty awaits him. Proverbs 28, verse 20 and following. Well, Paul said to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and following. Even as the materially rich in James chapter 5 hoarded their assets, and deprived people of the help they could afford to give, so we as God's people are rich spiritually and may yet be found hoarding the riches of the gospel for needy souls. Did you ever think of that? So in the Revelation, the book I'm talking about in our Bible, in the Revelation, there is a revelation on that. In the opening chapters of the last book of the Bible, Jesus, through his prophet John, addressed seven real geographical churches. We're not going to look at seven today, but we are going to look at two. Two of these churches found in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, Jesus encourages the church of Smyrna, saying, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 9 and 10. Wow, think of it. The crown of life. And our Lord clarified the issue, saying in Matthew's Gospel, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the one you're to fear. Matthew 10, verse 28. Smyrna was indeed rich. We would all love to fall 
into this spiritual category. We do not like the idea of persecution. But the promise of eternal life, when that day is done, is very encouraging. And it fills us with hope. But what is very disturbing is what Jesus said of the church of Laodicea. That's the second church. John writes, he's writing to Laodicean brethren, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But, writes John, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Revelation 3, verse 17 and following. These are the spiritually blessed who have left their silver and their gold Tarnish. They're the hoarders of gospel light who have not given it out to a world crying out to the God of the heavens in their darkness. Instead, they have hoarded their wealth and people have died. People, they have lived in luxury. People who have been impoverished while they have fattened themselves with self-indulgence. Theirs has been an introspective faith. That is, a self-serving faith. A faith that is content to say, I do not need a thing. They have it all. They think. But God questions their genuineness saying, be earnest and repent. Brethren, when the church becomes a safe haven instead of a mission station for the gospel, something is drastically wrong. Yet too often, this is where we are. We see church as our personal hideaway from the world, our retreat, our comfort zone, and we like it that way. We want no one to rock the boat, so to speak. We want to sing the hymns we love, nothing else. We want the liturgy to flow like clockwork with no deviations in form or function. We are 
ignorant, however, that God does not visit such places. God never intended that our faith should be directed inward for our own peace of mind, nor that it should become static. I had a professor at my seminary by the name of John Miller, and he wrote a little book. So this is a long time ago, but I'm, it, it might still be available. I'm not sure. But he was very much involved with us seminary students in terms of outreach. You guys are sitting here studying the Word of God. What are you doing on a weekend? What are you doing on Saturday? What are you doing on Sunday in terms of ministry? And he wrote this little book that was entitled Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And on page 20 of that book, it reads, The local church has intended was intended by Jesus to be a gathering of people full of faith strong in their confidence in him not a gathering of religious folk who desperately need reassurance it's quite a statement when we gather in God's house we need to encounter Christ, and it is faith that lays hold of him. Church is not to become simply a preaching station where we get the shot of spiritual food, B12, for the soul, and then we go home till next Sunday. So are we hoarding our spiritual wealth? Is your faith active if it is it alive could god's spirit ever break through and surprise you or do you have him all boxed in so that nothing soul enlightening can occur that's when churches get into living by their tradition and not by thus saith the Lord. Jesus promised whoever believes, there's your faith, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who lived in him would later receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 7, verse 38 and 39. But the promise here is that God's Spirit will empower us as we, and this is the present tense, as we believe in God and keep on believing in Christ. 
spirit empowerment and all that goes with that stops when you stop believing because it is faith that pleases God and stagnant or inward focus faith is self-confidence which dethrones God and elevates you. And that's every person in the world. That's what they think about faith. It's faith in me. It's faith in what I can do. And the moment you stop trusting God, you start trusting yourself. And when that occurs, the spirit is quenched and grieved and the living water dries up to a rocky stream bed with but a little trickle of its former glory. This is what breeds discouragement. Discouragement in you, discouragement in me as a Christian. This is why church workers become weary in doing good. This is why some sit on the sideline and never put their hand to the plow, so to speak. These are all characteristics of an introspective faith. It's faith in me. What are some of the symptoms of an introspective church? Well, let me ask some questions. Do you see us more like a church in Acts or more like the church at Corinth? Are we spiritual or are we carnal? Are we growing in love and grace or stagnating? Do you see personal spiritual growth in your own life? What sins have you repented of lately? Is there a renewal of your relationship with Christ? Would the world see by your behavior that you truly love Jesus? The difference between spotlight vision and peripheral vision. Out on our front lawns of our church building, there's erected a nice flagpole in loving memory of Mr. Westfall by his family. On the flag itself and on the other side of the facade to give balance there are two spotlights and they do a reasonably good job of illuminating those areas where the beam hits you can stand there at night and you can see the colors you can see the stars you can see the stripes of the flag you can see the scalloped decoration of the cedar shakes just below the rose window of the building out there. But as one begins to walk towards 
the front of the building, the light begins to dissipate, and with ten, in 10 or 12 feet, the detail of the architecture is obscure and indistinguishable. Few would be able to see the paint peeling on the windowsills or the weeds growing under the plexiglass window well covers, but they're there. Faith which is introspective in the body of Christ is spotlight vision. Spotlight vision. Which only has an eye for ministries of the church which can be accomplished by the visible human resources presently in place. In other words, we see what we do well. We see that. We see what we can pay for. We see what has worked in the past. We remind ourselves of the times we have failed. And then we determine our future course of action. By that retro vision. Well, that didn't work in the past. I don't know. What do you think? Should we try something like that again? Anything that is peripheral to the spotlight of the here and now focus cannot be seen or appreciated. We're into the peripheral. Now call it what you will, but this is nothing less than a classic case of unbelief and the quenching of the power of the Spirit through the sin of doubt. It isn't long then before we begin to resign ourselves to the status quo, we become content with dullness in worship as that's normal. Numerical growth, oh, that's impossible. Our tradition becomes sacrosanct and we question anything that might not conform to the vision of comfort we have all grown up to see and revere. Jesus put it this way, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing and he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. John 14, verse 12 and following. Do you believe that? See, that's the kind of faith that we need. Introspective faith doesn't believe that. No. It doesn't have the peripheral vision to see it. And this is patently obvious when indifference sets in to the truth that people without Christ are lost. They're lost. 
and they're in danger of perishing without a true witness of the gospel. You'll say to me, well, you know, I pray for the lost. I, I pray for my family. I, I pray for my friends. Yeah, that's the spotlight of your involvement. But unless you challenge them with the gospel, your prayers are but the desperate cry of people who have lost faith in the gospel's power to transform lives. You're hoping for a miracle from God to save them. Salvation without the truth that sets men free. Well, it won't happen. Not ever. People need to hear the truth. We believe the first part of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But you do not have faith in the promise of the commission. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Guess what? We are at the end of the age. Is God still with us? Or has he abandoned us? Is he still saving the lost? Or have we given up on his command? Is our faith spotlight? Or broader, peripheral. The second symptom of introspective church is a consensus among the people that we are superior. This kind of church becomes happy with themselves as compared to other churches. Content because it has the truth, preaches the truth, has not adopted liberal tendencies. It emphasizes its strength so it doesn't have to look at its weaknesses. It plays up the pluses so it doesn't have to face the negatives. And brethren, let me say, there are always negatives and we need faith to see them. Top song, a billboard song. 1945, World War II. Was a song by Johnny Mercer. With his chorus. You've got to accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. And latch on to the affirmative. And don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Great promotion of the theory of the power of positive thinking. 
but it does little for people who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Churches which only accentuate the positive while eliminating the negative develop an elitist aura concerning themselves. They begin to feel pretty good about their performance, boasting in their achievements. But Christ is offended and abandoned such because the Bible ever affirms that the Spirit of Christ resides with the humble of heart and opposes the proud. Paul put it this way, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. And his personal testimony was this. Paul says, I glory in Christ. I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power and signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Romans 15, verse 17 following. May it become our mission as well to glory in Christ. And not so much rest on our laurels. Whatever we are by God's grace and by his grace. We have much more to do. So God made us the way we are by gracing us with his goodness. But that makes us all the more incumbent upon doing similar with regard to those that yet do not know, do not believe. Thirdly, the introspective church is hypersensitive to negative criticism. We read last week from Hebrews 10 that confident faith does not shrink back from God and our confidence in Him just because persecution or insults come from others. Let me read it. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10, verse 39. We observe that this is not that self-confidence that we spoke of earlier, which is sin. No, this is affirmation is based on the previous verse. My righteous one will live by faith. That is faith in God. But having said that, the introspective church member is easily put off and defeated by negative criticism. 
he or she will shrivel up and blow away at the first sign of opposition. And people will say, well, you know, I, I'm just not very confrontational. Do you know that some things are worth fighting for? They are. Jesus did not roll over and play dead when the Pharisees accused him of doing miracles by the power of the devil. Boy, he saw red on that one. Nor when they abused their position by oppressing the poor and the widows under whom uh, the, the, their responsibilities were to be employed. If you don't, don't stand for righteousness among your family and friends, who's going to do that? I'm looking at the political landscape today and Trump's getting beat up. For what? For standing for the truth. Against the prosecutor in New York that wants to make a name for himself. When we stand, make sure you stand for righteousness as the Bible defines such and not just what is your own opinion. God hasn't called you to set everyone straight and bring them into conformity to your own views. A highly know-it-all person can crush timid souls and stunt their spiritual growth all in the name of, oh, I was just trying to help. That said, yet the timid need to learn to stand on their own spiritual two feet, they do, and not cave in at the slightest opposition. To be terrified by fear is a sign of defective love. If the world needs anything these days, it needs to see a church characterized by vibrant love. And love tells the truth. In fact, rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. This is not a green light to be obnoxious as we speak to others. Certainly not that. But it is the responsibility to lovingly tell folks that we love that their sin will kill them in the end and ruin their lives in the present. Every sinner thinks he or she is a-okay the way they are. They have no clue as to the weight of God's wrath hanging over their heads because of sin. If you're more concerned about being perceived as a good light rather than faithful to God as his ambassador of truth, 
then you are introspective and self-serving. This lack of living faith is what stagnates church, churches collectively and hinders them from realizing their full potential. Why? Because they will not risk change. They just won't. Nor the offense inherent in the gospel. Not going to take flack to speak the gospel. It's comfortable, non-threatening, and requires no research, no thought, no new direction, just to accept the status quo. Then fourthly, the introspective church strives to be a nice place to worship God. And by nice is meant a pleasant place, a place of tranquility, a church with a nice pastor preaching, a nice message about a nice Savior, in pleasant tones to nice people on a nice Sunday morning. in the nice Michigan countryside. Now, nothing wrong necessarily with having the reputation for being kind and considerate and gentle with people who come our way. The Spirit of God does not conform us to the character of Jesus as he ministers to people that he wants us to be conformed for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus was not always peaches and cream. He wasn't. Sometimes he was fire and brimstone. Especially when people's souls were at stake. It is not being nice to let people think all is well with their soul when it's not. Much of Jesus' ministry was to cause people to think about their relationship to God. And to do that, he did not water down sin. There are churches in our day that will not, they will not speak of sin or repentance or forgiveness or restoration. They won't speak on any of those subjects. And no, 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 no reference to judgment. That's anathema. Can't talk about God's wrath. Dare not speak about hell for those who do not repent. So they have reinvented the gospel as surely as the school textbook authors have rewritten history to smooth over the bloody or turbulent times of the past and to downplay Christianity's role in establishing a nation that trusts in God. 
You cannot get to forgiveness and restoration of favor with God without first dealing with the blood on our hands. God told his people through Isaiah, listen to this, stop bringing meaningless offerings. I can just hear God saying this. Here it is. Isaiah wrote it down. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. He goes on. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Ooh. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will not listen. Why not, God? Why won't you listen when we pray? We're bringing the animal sacrifices that you commanded, along with the incense that you ordained. Our prayers ascend like smoke to the heavens. Why will you not respond favorably? God answers, your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Isaiah 1, 13 and following. It's a call to repentance. Well, we have to get past the nice and deal with the bloody hands before God will have anything to do with us. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin like we do. He sees it all. And we obviously is not impressed with the sacrificial gifts we bring to the altar, nor the copious amounts of pious prayers that we pray. The reason people need salvation is because, get it folks, they're lost. They're lost. And the thing that makes them lost is their deep sin. So it is an injustice to God to represent Him as Mr. Nice Guy, as the love daddy in the sky. He's the King of kings, the King of glory, perfect in all His ways, holy and exalted above the heavens, of purer eyes, than even to look at sin, the scripture says. And Jesus, his son, is not the effeminate, namby-pamby, hippie guru philosopher so many imagine him to be. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who in righteous anger made a whip one day 
and drove the merchants out of the temple court on that day because they had made his father's house a den of thieves and a house of merchandise. Jesus is not nice when it comes to willful sin. He is not a tame or safe God. We do not get to remake him by emasculating him. It is not safe to view Jesus through rose-colored glasses. The writer of Hebrews tells of Moses' reaction when God confronted him on Sinai. And we read, The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So Paul says, do you remember that? Moses on Mount Sinai got to see what? The shadow of God, the backside of God. In Moses' own words is, I am terrified and I am trembling with fear. Now here's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say to his New Testament people. But you, brethren, have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, not an earthly mountain, the city of the living God. You've come to God, the judge of all men. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it! That you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Does that sound like a, the God that's being preached in the American churches? That's Hebrews 12, 21 and following. Jesus is that judge. He is that consuming fire. But I can tell you, and I do tell you, that there is love in Christ for every sinner who repents. 
every trembling soul need not fear to approach him who is on the throne come as you are crawl if you have to this king has the power to pardon as well as to condemn and for all who repent of their sin and seek his forgiveness there is full final pardon with no parole to delay his grace. No penance on your part to make amends. God has done it all. He simply commands you to repent and believe that he has done it. And God's promise in his own words is this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Coming to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55 verse 7. That turning to God is you exercising The little faith God has deposited in your heart. And today if you hear God's call, come confidently. Come as you are. Come believing and God will make you his child. And to every professing Christian here this morning, are you a person with introspective faith? Faith that looks inward instead of upward. Faith in itself rather than faith in God. I put the word in quotes, faith, because it really isn't faith at all. It's unbelief. It's crippling you, giving you a false peace, robbing you of true salvation, and the joy that goes with it. So you must repent. You need to get real with God. The day's short. The nighttime is approaching. Judgment is coming. We are living in the last days. And when it's over... It's over. There's no second chance. People think that. So I'll I'll, I'll wait to see what the future holds and then based on what I understand, I'll have time to repent. No, you won't. You won't. God says, I'm going to come at a time when you're not ready for it. I'm going to show up and you won't see me coming. I'll be here and accomplishing my judgment while you're just scratching your head. Well, don't we get a second chance? No. Your chance is now. How do I know that? Because the scripture says it. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This is your day of opportunity. 
blow it, it may never show up again for you. I wish I could express the urgency of that more. There is an urgency. And you know, Jesus told the disciples, they said, Lord, please show us the time of your coming. Now they're they're already disciples. They're following Christ. And he says to them, No one knows the day or the hour except my Father who is in heaven. Not even the Son knows the day or the hour. Therefore, be ready. Knowing human nature, what it's like, would you, what would you think about a person that knew the day that Jesus was coming? I'll tell you what they would do. They would live like the devil right up until the day. And then they would think, well, he's coming today or he's coming tomorrow. Tonight I'm going to pray and I'll get right with God. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Why not? Because not only is the day hidden as to when he's coming, but faith that brings salvation is the gift of God, not your personal, oh, now I'll do my little prayer. And if God doesn't give it, you don't get it. And if you don't get it, you're lost. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't think that way. Think today is the day. Think present time. Don't think I have all the time in the world. No, you don't. You have the time that God gives you. And David says in one of the Psalms, all the days you have for me are written in your book. Not one of them will come to pass except by your decrees. All the days you have for me are already, they were written down before the beginning of the, of the world. We don't know a God like that, do we? I don't know a person like that whose authority is such that he can depend, d- demand things for the future and they're not going to change. They're going to come about just as he said and when he said and how he said and all of those characteristics that go along with the reality of it. Trust the Lord today. He's given you breath today. He's given you life today. You're not promised tomorrow. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your grace.
to us. I pray that you'll bless the truth that we have in the scripture here. James, your half-brother, told the truth. James had to learn that personally he was a sinner. He wasn't like Jesus. He needed a Savior. And his half-brother was the only Savior the world was going to get. Bless us with the truth of your word. Save whom you will today. And we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, closing hymn. Does someone have a hymnal? Or I mean a bulletin? Wait a minute, I might have it here. 524 in Trinity. Find 524 in your hymnal. Will you stand, please? take a 10 minute break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service and let us close our service here.
with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its convicting work. I pray that the Spirit of God will do his convicting work. Help us to see in Jesus our only hope of salvation. Someone's going to pay for our sins. It's either us or Jesus. If it's us, it's going to take an eternity in hell to pay for them. If it's Jesus, it took the cross. And the sinless one was nailed to it. And he endured the agony and the judgment of God for our sin. Bless us in the hour to come as we think about the Lord's table. And we remember your broken body. And we remember your shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Ten minutes. Also, um, for those of you who are meeting with Phil, find Phil about uh, breakfast next Sunday. Men who are volunteering. Yeah. <laughs>